And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Welcome to Seed Red. Hey, boys and girls, welcome to Scene Red. I'm David K. Montoya. All right, kids, I just wanted to sit and talk about a few things today. Um, you know, uh, Terry, who's been a good friend of mine, and, and I've talked about Terry for years, even before the podcasting. He's just a, a really good guy, and he's a great friend, and, and he's my mentor. And the I'd say probably, the, I think this is the third or fourth week, he's, he's come to stay with Lacey and and Jaden and Zoe and I, and um, <clears throat> so he's been watching a lot of TV. Um, in, in fact, one of the main stations that are on our TV most of the time is, is Sci-Fi, and one of the days that he had on Sci-Fi, there was a, a television program called, oh, what was it, uh, Cosplay Heroes or something like that? And it got me to thinking, um, you know, why why is cosplay such a, a big thing nowadays? Uh, you know, when I went, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let me start at the beginning. You know, I've been a comic book fan. Um, well, let's see. The first time I was introduced to actual comic books, I was probably about nine years old. So that was like 1986. Uh, and it, it would take about four years later for me to become a, a, an actual hardcore fan. And I knew about conventions and stuff. And and they came out with this magazine called Wizard Magazine back in the, the 90s. And it, I, I ran a little bit into, you know, 2000. It still exists, but it's an online publication now. But back then it was just a a print magazine. And they would talk about, you know, Comic-Con and, and Wizard World and stuff like that. And they would show people that were dressed up. And I don't think they even had a name for it back then. Uh, you know, it was just people in costumes. And even for a lot of the comic fans, uh, including myself, I was like, wow, you know, I, okay. You know, I don't think I'd ever see myself dress up. And maybe it's just because I'm a fat fuck. And, you know, it didn't matter what i dress up as. Maybe the blob. I might get away with, you know, being playing the blob or something. But I, I think the general consensus was that these people that would go and, and role play and, and, and they would go into costume and character was a completely different type of fan altogether. And though there was some attention on this role-playing, again, I don't believe it was called cosplay until most recently, um, they're, they they kind of were separated from the rest of the world, well, definitely separated from the rest of the world, but they were even separated from the average comic book reader. And I don't want to go as far as saying, wow, that's super nerdy, because, you know, being a comic book fan is nerdy in itself. But, I mean, and honestly, that was the way I felt. So, coming into today, um, you know, it's, it's a, a big thing. And to be honest with you, back in the 90s when I was really learning about the, the comic book culture, there was a majority of men that were dressed up. And then if they were dressed up, most of them were dressed up like, um, 
Star Wars or Star Trek uh, characters. You know, not so much women. Well, we jump to today, and now there's a thing called cosplay. And it's a big thing. I mean, obviously, to the point where there's a TV show about it. And it's, it's a phenomenon uh, for, for this culture of today. And I was trying to think. I mean, I know, you know, it was a, a big thing in Japan. So maybe that kind of influenced the Americans. But I, I was just curious as to why people have now decided to cosplay. And one of the things also that's come to my attention is the the spectrum of cosplay personnel or people or whatever you want to call them is the majority of them are women to men. Now, watching this TV show, you you can look and kind of tell that these people are not comic book fans. Um, there's some that are. You can tell they're fans of, of the culture. But then there's the some that you can just look at and say, oh, that's a model. You know, all, and and still, it was trying to... I, I was trying to wrap my mind around it. I was trying to figure out why, what was the the motivation behind all of this. And what I came about, actually, my mind traveled, and, and we were talking about this uh, probably a month or so ago. It was Aaron and I, we were sitting down, and we were talking about nerds and geeks and stuff. And he made a, you know, he said he hated fake geeks. And I'm like, why the fuck would a person pretend to be a fake geek? And then I decided to do a little bit of research. And then it, it came crystal clear to me what had happened. What What is this phenomenon? And the phenomenon is basically if you win a cosplay contest at some comic book convention, you get some greenbacks, brother. You get some cash. And then it, it, it hit me. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what Aaron's talking about. These people that aren't... Ne well, not necessarily, but they're just not comic book fans. The, the only reason they're there is because they know they have a nice body and they can show it off with these costumes and a potential cash prize. So that's where the fake geekdom comes in. Though I, I'm still kind of... I, I don't know, folks. It's, it's kind of interesting on my end because, again, it was... The point where the nerds were saying, these nerds are nerdy. You know what I'm saying? It, it was kind of like, wow. But now it's become such a, a national interest that it's it's got its own TV show. But it's after this, after learning what the motivation is, the motivating factor behind why they're doing this, it, it kind of makes more sense now. Um you know, and I, I was thinking to myself, out of all these people that actually go to cosplay, how many of them are fans? And that kind of got my mind reeling, too. So I went in, I was bored yesterday, and I, I typed in cosplay. And I was going through, and it's interesting enough, because you can tell who is a, a fan and who is not a fan. And it's all on the amount of detail in the costume. For example, um, there is... Oh, uh, what was it? There was a Hellboy costume. And you can tell the guy spent time because, you know, he, he sat and made the hand and he had the horns on his head, the tail, you know, he's painted red... And he even had uh, Baby, the, the gun, you know, the Hellboy's big-ass gun. Um, and I, I thought, okay, okay, this is real. Because I was more interested in looking at the details in the costume. So I, I, I felt that this person had to have been a real Hellboy fan in order to understand that amount of detail. And then... You go and you can find 
a lady that is dressed up like the X-Men Cyclops. Now, at first, I was, I was like, okay, well, maybe. But then I, I started looking at the costume, and I, I felt that it was more purposed around sex appeal. So, well, number one, Cyclops is a dude, not a chick. And number two, again, there was just some really tight spandex, you know, uh, midsection was removed and, and it, it was very appealing to, uh, the eye. And I was like, well, this was kind of tough to decide because I mean, as far as like gear, she had a visor, the visor looked good. Um, you know, the right colors and whatnot. So I, I, I couldn't figure it out. You know, whether it was a fan that made this and, and it was just some chick who liked Cyclops and decided to pay homage to him as dressing up. Okay, that's cool. And then I go to this next scene. And the next one, and, and mind you, I'm, I'm on, uh, Google Images, so I'm just clicking next, you know, checking it out. And there's this chick, she's dressed up, well, I don't even know if dressed would be the appropriate word. But, um, she, she was Poison Ivy. And essentially what it was is she had probably like plastic leaves, uh, pasted over her nipples and, and over her, her crotch and, and, and throughout the, the body, you know, she had it. But there was gaping open spaces to show the body. And again, I, and this is just my opinion, but I felt that this was not a fan because she was, she looked like a model. You know, models just have that certain look about them. And there was no interest in, oh, she's that character. It was pretty much essentially a, a naked woman with pasties on, you know, just covering up parts of the body. And, I was like, okay, I think I get it. I think I get the the concept because I and I said, okay, she's probably not a comic book nerd because while there are comic book fans that are in, in really good physical health and and they are uh, athletes on the side. I mean, there's there's some. The majority of comic book fans are nerds, which means that they enjoy playing video games, they enjoy watching TV, movies, drawing, writing, playing on the computer. So there's no real physical activity. So I think maybe a lot of the, the, the fans wouldn't appropriately work for cosplay because they're just not physically fit enough to play in cosplay. So I think that that's where the line is drawn with that is that there is some fans that are, are not so much interested in, in the sex appeal behind it, but they're just playing, they're playing character. You know, they're, they're, um, make believe it's it's just an opportunity to become their favorite character and and become part of that world and those people again usually are you know slim and trim and built um you really don't see fat cosplayers you know again like i said you wouldn't see my ass in a cosplay suit because i'm i'm just fat i'm a fat fucker you know it's just life and reality and then you have the professional cosplayers, which I, I think it's safe to say at this point, if anybody comes to you and say, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a professional cosplayer. They're, they're not a comic book fan. They're more into dressing up, showing off their body, and winning a cash prize from these conventions. And that's what I think Aaron was getting at, you know, when we talked about it, you know, sometime back is that these people are taking advantage of the fans. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure the fans are 
they they probably could care less, you know. They just get to see people dressed up as characters, and that's cool enough. But in my personal opinion, I, I do think that it's it's wrong to me. It's wrong to to think that you know these people are infiltrating an area of geekdom or nerdum, whichever you want to call it, to exploit what they look like and make money off of the fans. I don't know. I just, and, and some people that are listening to this probably are like, oh, shut the fuck up, fat boy. But that's just the way I feel. I think that it's just a wrong thing to do. Um, if you're going to cosplay, I think it should be the fans. And, you know, again, watching the the cosplay on Sci-Fi Channel, um, you know, these people are, are becoming more diligent about the detail in the costume because that's how they're they're picking out the fake cosplayers to the real cosplayers. Now, let me tell you something, folks. You don't have to figure it out so much as where you're looking at how fine detail things have gotten. If you're in a Wizard World Chicago and then you see this cosplayer and the next week you're at the San Diego Comic Con and you see this person that week and then you're back at the New York Comic Con and you see that person that week and they are all been trying to get into the cosplay contest, let me tell you, that's probably not a a real fan. Um, again, this, this is just my opinion. I know there there is people that can just blow money like that and, and go all over the country while while it's Comic Con season, and I do get that. But I think the majority of the people that are showing up, going all over the United States to to be in these cosplay contests, are not fans. They're just there to try to make a buck. Again, uh, it, it's just my opinion. And if you listen to this and you, you decide that you want to correct me or educate me on something, because I'm saying, I'm, I'll tell you right now, you know, this is just all opinion. Some of it is investigated. Some of it's just opinion. But if there's something that you can educate me on as in, as way of cosplay, you can definitely send me an email um, and and tell me about it. In fact, you can go to Scene Red uh, email address. It's Scene S E E I N G underscore Red at Jaisomon J A Y Z O M O N dot com, and and send me an email. Tell me tell me why I'm wrong or Tell me if I'm right. Just let me know. I'm just kind of curious on this matter because it's, I don't know, folks. It's kind of hard to, to explain how I feel about it. I mean, either way, I, I enjoy looking at people taking the time to dress up as my favorite characters or just comic book characters in general. It is fun to look at whether they're, they're professionals or they're fans. Um, but I again, I just feel like it's it's wrong to to go into this world where it was originally something. It was the nerd of the nerds, you know. That's again, that's the way it was looked at. People that cosplay were the nerd of the nerds. They would cross a boundary that most of us would not, you know. And in fact, for me, it it took many years for me to even get to a comic con. Um, my very first con was uh, Wizard World L.A. in 2008, and I went with a uh, good friend, Mario Martinez, and his brother, Chris, and, and Rebecca, my sister. She went with me and, and the other two, and we had a good time. And, yes, we did see a few uh, cosplayers. And I think this was before the boom, you know, the cosplay boom. And... <clears throat> You can kind of tell they were just really into that character. They they wanted to be that person, and that was cool. You know, we in fact we got a couple shots um, of that. I don't know if I have any Wizard World pictures up anywhere. Um, I'll have to go look and see. 
But anyway, yeah, it took a long time even after that to to go back. Um, let's see, that was in 2008. I think in 2009, uh, we went to the San Diego Comic-Con. And holy fuck, brother, that thing, I, I don't know how these people can do it, okay? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. In fact, uh, I, I think my mom watched Jaden because Zoe wasn't born yet. And Lacey and I and Mario and his wife, we all went down to San Diego and we went to Comic-Con. And we decided to go on a Sunday because we knew Sunday was going to be the last day of Comic-Con and, and figured that it was going to be, you know, less crowded. And in theory, I think it was, even though there was like a 100,000 people there that day on a Sunday, there was just so many people. It was, it was really, to me, it was not that enjoyable just because it was that, you know, many people and body heat and confined to one area. But anyway, um, there were more cosplayers. And again, I, when I've seen these people, um, I didn't really think much of them trying to, to win a, a costume award. It was just them enjoying what they did. Uh, you know, again, and in fact, I know I've got pictures, and if you go to facebook.com slash David period K period Montoya, that's my Facebook page, um, you can look at the pictures and you can check them out. I mean, there's, uh, they did, we took a picture of, uh, someone dressed up as Boba Fett, that looked awesome. The, of course, Stormtroopers, that was awesome. You know, that's kind of a given as far as cosplays because you see, you know, these these people dressed up as Star Wars. I guess that kind of falls hand in hand with um, <clears throat> cosplay and Comic-Con. And then there was one really cool one of the Predator that we took a picture of. And then I think I have a picture. I think it's on there. There's a picture of a guy that dressed up as Bishop. That was cool from the X-Men and Spider-Man and some some other ones. You know, and in fact, there was, we'd seen other um, people. And <clears throat> I don't know why. I mean, for example, there was like a whole, a whole bunch of ladies that were dressed up in, in kind of uh, racy Iron Man gear. Again, lots of skin. And it just didn't work for me. You know, it, it, again, it was not about the character. I think it was more about the sex appeal. Look at me, look at me. And um, I don't know, folks. It was just kind of interesting. And then the following year would be my last year going to a con. We went to the Anaheim Comic Con. Uh, which is hosted by Wizard. And that time it was uh, my sister and I. And it was just... That's when I think the change started happening, was in roughly about 2010. Because I, I noticed that there was more people dressed up as characters, but there was a lot more skin showing. And I... I I don't want to stereotype, I really don't, but that's just my opinion, again, um, that, you know, these people really didn't care about the characters that they were portraying, um, I, I, and I'm sure that they've had Comic-Con uh, contests for cosplay for some time, and they're probably after that, but I think in the beginning stages, it was just uh, maybe vain and narcissistic people showing up dressed up, showing a lot of skin to get attention on them. Uh, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and I, I, I will watch it. In fact, I, I've watched a few episodes on the Sci-Fi channel, and whenever I have a chance, I'll check it out, because it is, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I crack myself up, because I'm watching these people on the Sci-Fi channel, and, and they're they're like freaking out that they're they're not going to have their costumes ready 
before the contest. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Let me tell you something right now. And I don't care what anybody says. If you show up to Comic-Con and you don't have a costume and you're making the fucking thing there in your hotel room, you are not a fan. If you were a real fan, your shit would be done beforehand. And if it wasn't finished, you just wouldn't wear it. It's that simple. And for people that are doing this, they're pros and, and they're not fans. I don't care what anybody says. You know, because showing up day one on Comic Con, not, I don't know, folks. Because, and it also, also, here's another factor now that I'm thinking about it. Okay, you see a person dressed up as whatever character, they have the contest. And then immediately after the contest, you see them in regular clothes for the rest of the day, or they just disappear entirely. That tells you they're not a fan. And so what this all has to do is I agree, and I understand finally with Aaron's comment about being a, a fake fan and how irritating that is. Because, you know, you're, you're supposed to feel secure around your own people and if you have fake fans that are is kind of infiltrating the world of geekdom as you know it as a at a comic-con you know i think it takes away from the luster you know that imagery that people take home with the idea of being at a comic-con it's it's um obviously there's nothing how do i say this without sounding super geeky uh, you know, they're welcome to do it. But I think that if if you're a non-fan, then in the process, you need to become a fan of something. You know, there should be like a questionnaire for the contest, you know, to, to evaluate how big of a, a fan you are. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the whole world of comics. You know, obviously, I don't know everything about every comic, I'm, I'm specifically in tuned with, like, Marvel and the X-Men, more so the X-Men than even the Marvel Universe. You know, um, I think that those type of situations are made for the geeks and the nerds at Comic-Con, and I think people that are us, the geeks and the nerds, should enjoy it more, and it should be strictly for us more, if that makes any sense whatsoever. And now, a word from our sponsors. Before 1971, a young S. Sadie Burbank could only imagine a simple American life as a loving wife and mother. That was her goal when she first married in 1959 at the age of 18, but with the wild social revolution of the 1960s, Burbank's idea of a perfect life would quickly change as she left behind her family to begin a new existence of her own. Her journey would find her on a plane headed toward her new lover, Steve, who was halfway across the world, waiting her arrival in a small bush camp in the country of Liberia. Once there, Sadie is greeted with a fascinating, strange world and plunges herself into the exotic land of the bush. But less than six months later, Sadie would realize all was not as it seemed, and Steve was not the man she fell in love with. Burbank found herself desperately seeking escape from the camp and her lover as she raced back to Robertsfield Airport, literally running for her life. Based on an unbelievably true story by S. Sadie Burbank, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner is a manuscript of Burbank's adventurous and deadly experience during a time filled with sex, drugs, and murder. Now available in paperback and hardback. For more information, log into www.redhills.us. Looking for a new book, comic, or apparel from your favorite MythWorks or independent creators? Then you're in the right place. Introducing the all-new redesigned MythMart store. Now bigger, badder, better. Sign up and become a member and receive 10 to 50% off on selected items. 
Get the all-new Terry D. Shearer's Bloody Hell T-shirt or non-members to pick up one of our e-books for only $4.95. Or go into the past to relive the 90s with MythWorks Comics Classics for $3.99. The new MythMart. Bigger, badder, better. Visit MythMart at www.mythworks.com slash MythMart. Or find us on Facebook for extra savings. Do you own a business or have an item you want to sling? Do you want a chance to reach potential customers? Do you want to make some extra cash? Then here's your chance. For $50, you can have a one to two minute commercial featured on each of our shows for an entire month. With six shows a week, that's only $2.09 per podcast. Plus, for an extra 10 bucks, your item will be placed into MythMart. So sit back and relax as they handle all stages of transactions. Contact our ad department at info at jaysamon.com. And speaking of making sense, um, this week I've done something a little bit uncharacteristic of me. I decided that I was going to watch um, some movies. And <clears throat> this week I listened, or not listened, I actually watched um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I skipped Nightmare on Elm Street 1 uh, just because I've seen it so many times. And I still like it, but I, I decided that I wanted to see 3 because... Three, four, and five are my favorite. And as a kid, I never really put two and two together. I just, I think I was more in tuned with the mass slaughtering of, of innocent kids to Freddy Krueger's one-liners, you know. That was my thing. But uh, this week I decided that I was going to watch Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was joined with uh, Terry DeShear. He came out and he watched it. Um, and I was really in tune to it. I, I really picked up on things that I hadn't seen in a long time or I never even noticed, uh, you know, in the multiple times that I've seen it. And one of the things that I really didn't quite appreciate until now was that the stories three, four, and five are one giant story. If, if you watch them in sequence, it tells one whole story from beginning to end. And I thought that was really interesting. And maybe that's why I like that piece, those three movies, is because it's one giant story. And, uh, but anyway, I watched part three the other day, and it was pretty late, but I was really into it. And, um, Terry ended up going to bed afterwards. It was it was pretty late. It was probably like midnight uh, when it ended. But I wanted to keep on going, so I ended up and I watched part four. And it it's really good. And the fun thing is, is that while there is some uh, dated special effects, I think the storytelling and the the overall acting is. It holds up, even to today, you know, and, and yeah, some of it's kind of silly looking because it's just old, you know, uh, what was it? The first Nightmare on Elm Street was made in 1984, and then, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 came out, and you know how I skipped 2, 2 was just, that's, that's sorry, that was a sorry movie, still to this day, I have the collection of all the movies, and I've, I've had it for years, and I've not even opened the second one. I have it for the sequence of having all the movies, but I have not even watched two. And I probably will, never will watch two. It was just, I didn't like it. It was a horrible film. But anyway, so first one came out in 1984, and then somewhere between that, you know, um, two came out. And then by 1987, part three came out. It actually came out in February of 1987. Uh, so I was almost 10, I was 9 and, and, you know, uh, what, 
nine in nine months or some shit like that. I was like almost ten. And I remember seeing this movie. Um, my cousin Virgil, he would pick me up on the weekends and we all go out and do things. And I remember he said that he was, he told my mom that we were going to go see the movie. And he was like, or my mom was like, eh, you know, let me check it out first before I take you, or, you know, you take him to the movies. And of course he says, sure, no problem. And from there, we left straight from the house. We grabbed something to eat, and we went right to the movies. And I remember just it was kind of a, a fun thought. It came back to me while I was watching part three the other night. You know, <clears throat> it was my my first stages of rebellion, I guess. But anyway, uh, you know, we went to a drive-in, and part three, I was telling Terry, part three was actually the last Nightmare on Elm Street movie that I seen at a drive-in theater. Everything else would be, you know, matinees, or not matinees, but uh, walk-ins. And, you know, pretty much, especially here in California, I don't know so much about, like, in the Midwest, in the South, in the East, but definitely here on the West Coast, the the movie theater, the drive-in, um, it's it's all pretty much but a memory. I know there is a, a movie theater drive-in probably about an hour from here. But unfortunately, it's in a really shitty place. And you, you wouldn't be able to. And I think maybe that's why the theaters have gone and died. Is because, you know, it's just not safe. And in fact, I guess there's, you know, been multiple shootings and killings at this particular drive-in. But anyway, I'm getting off subject. Let me jump back on subject. So anyway, uh, so I watched Nightmare on Street 3, and, and I really enjoyed it. And it was just uh, really interesting because I never picked it up until Terry brought it to my attention just how bad Nancy, and Nancy's the, the heroine of the first Nightmare on Street. She comes back in the... Uh, the third one, and just how bad of an actress she is. Um, it was, I don't remember what line it was, and we were talking about this after the movie, and he said, you know, the acting for, you know, a horror flick, it was pretty good. You know, everybody was going in and making it believable. Um, he said, other than the chick that played Nancy, and I, I thought about it, and I, I read it back, and I was like, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, you know, usually you get better with age and acting, but it, it, to me it actually felt like she was a better actress when she did the first one than when she did the third one and, you know, four years later. And also another note that I'd like to throw in is uh, Lawrence Fishburne was in this film. He was an orderly in the, the mental ward. And fuck was he young, man. And it was funny, too, because... It wasn't, on the credits, it wasn't Lawrence Fishburne. It was actually Larry Fishburne. Uh, just just a little, you know, FYI there. But anyway, um, so I, I ended up watching two, or excuse me, three and four that night. And then uh, I've been busy uh, with other things. I'm still working on the script and, and for the movie, and I'll get to that in a minute. But last night, you know, I, I really wasn't doing much. Uh, found myself, I was laying on the couch. And Terry was watching uh, Ghost Miner, I believe, or Ghost Mine or something like that, which is on sci-fi as well. And I decided that I, I was going to watch part five of Nightmare on Elm Street. So I grabbed my laptop and just stretched out on the couch and threw the DVD in. And I ended up watching part five last night. And it was, it was fun. It was, uh, again, if you watch three, four, and five, it tells the whole story. And I don't know why I enjoyed part five. I, I remember, you know, I told Terry originally that part three was my favorite. But I think that maybe part five might be my new favorite. And I don't know if it's because it was, it had to do with his mom and, 
and stuff like that. And I, I thought it brought more of a deeper element to it. I don't know. It was just really good. I thought the acting was really good. Um, I liked the character Alice. You know, she was really good as well. Um, and of course, and, and this might have something to do with it. You know, there's that one scene, if, if you've not seen part five of Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, spoilers. Um, <clears throat> there's this one dude in there that he's a, he's a big comic book fan. And they, they have him constantly having comic books. And one of the things that I picked up on right away is they actually used real comic books. I seen, you know, I think I seen like Spider-Man. I know I seen an X-Men. My eyes gravitated right to the X-Men comic book. Um, and I thought that was really cool that they used real comic books. But anyway, um, he went in the dream and, and he turned into this superhero. And, and of course, Freddy kills him anyway. But I, I, I thought that was kind of neat. Um, I don't know, I just, I really enjoyed the Nightmare on Elm Street 5 as a, a whole, you know, in the movie, and, and if you really watch it beginning to end, I think the end really tells the, the conclusion, or, or what the, the purpose of the end story was supposed to be, you know, that the mother was freed from her, her entrapment, and her spirit went and pretty much took Kruger and, and, you know, took him to hell or wherever she went. But, I don't know, I'll, I might go and see part six, which is Freddy's Dead. I actually have the 3D glasses um, still, so, I don't know, I think that might be fun to watch. Though, I did pick up an extra shift today at the hospital, so, I don't know. I know I won't be watching it tonight. We'll see what happens. Thank God I have Netflix on my phone. <laughs> um, let's see, so what else do I got going on? Um... Because I wanted to talk about the cosplay. I wanted to talk about the Nightmare on Elm Street thing. Um, I did get an email, well, a few emails, talking about the, the new Battle of the Atom storyline for the X-Men. Um, and I said I'd, I'd talk about that. So let me talk about that for a minute. Uh, Battle of the, the Atom, I've read the first two uh, pieces. Um, Battle of the Atom part or story one or book one or whatever it's called, and then of course the new all new X Men which I collect anyway digitally. You know I, I read that and my thoughts are it's interesting. It's interesting that that's where they're going because you have it, it gets a little confusing especially with the Jean Grey thing. Um, and with Jean Grey, you know, because in all new X-Men, they take the, the original five X-Men from the 1960s and, and bring it to, well, 1963 to be exact, and bring it from 1963 to 2013, 50 years into the future. And so they're there with the present X-Men. And then in this storyline... In the future, the future X-Men come to 2013. So you literally have, like, there's three beasts in this story. And it's the past, the present, and the future beast. And it gets a little confusing, but I like the premise. I like where the storyline's going. I noticed that Brian Michael Bendis turned up his writing skills. Um, not so much dialogue, because I think he's a very good dialogue writer anyway. But he there's more to read than just... Bamf and oomph and ugh, you know, those onomatopoeias. And I've said this many times, onomatopoeias are not dialogue. Um, so yeah, I, I really like where it's going. Uh, when I get a chance and more time, I'm gonna, you know, buy some more issues and, and keep going through. And, and hopefully by the time we get to the finale, finale, the finale of, of the Battle of the Atom, I won't be disappointed. And, and, uh, you know, maybe this will have some type of an impact on on the storyline and, and hopefully set things maybe a little bit more straight on straight and narrow of the, the storytelling story and the continuity. Because the continuity is all over the fucking place. And that's that's one of the things that I think I have the biggest issue with is, is the continuity. Um, so that's with that. 
I'm on the second draft of A Yotnom, the animated movie. Um, I've been brainstorming a lot with uh, Terry DeShear. We watched a new, another movie, was it this week or last week? I think it was the beginning of this week. We watched The Last Samurai. And I can't believe I've, I've never seen that movie. It was just a really great movie. Um, I got to see some some swordplay in live action. That was fun, you know, that I'll be able to hopefully translate into my script. And it's it's moving along. It's moving along slowly. And the reason that is is because I'm being cautious um, about the storytelling. I want to tell a full-hearted, rounded story. You know, I want it to be something that people read or, or watch on, on the TV or big screen in this game. Damn, that's really good, you know. So I'm taking my time with it. Um, you know, I'm not going to fly through it like I usually do. Um, so we're still with that. We're, we still have a few uh, casting members that we need to get casted. But I think the majority of the script, um, or the, excuse me, the majority of the characters in the script have been casted. I, I'm pretty much sure I've got that in line. Um... And I don't know. I mean, we're just we're just taking it slowly. I don't want to overshoot the gun or anything like this because it's going to be such a big project, and I, I want to make sure that I, I have all my ducks in a row before you know we start any type of official pre-production or excuse me, finishing any pre-production and going into production. Um, I think Kickstarter, the Kickstarter will definitely go up. Uh, as soon as I, I finish the final draft, and then when I finish the final draft, then I'll send it off to the, the the different voice actors, and they can read it, and you know they can definitely give me the yes or no's if they want to be a part of this. Um, it's it's really big. I mean, it's 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 a fun story too. I'm trying to keep it uh, uh, even mixed of action and drama. Um, so far, the endings changed three times. We'll see what happens, you know, by the time we actually get to the final draft. Uh, let's see what else is going on. I am still working on It's a Dark Ride. I know I mentioned that a couple times. If you follow me through any of the other podcasts that I do, I've, I've mentioned that. I am working on It's a Dark Ride. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully... You know, I'll have it ready to go by the end of next month. Uh, you know, more specifically Halloween, uh, and and have that book. It's going to be a combination of ebook and paperback book. So you'll be able to buy it, you know, for your Kindle, or you can just buy a straight paperback book. Um, I've been diving in and, and working on some of the stories. Uh, Terry's actually been editing the story, or the stories rather. Um, I guess I should explain that It's a Dark Ride is a anthology of 13 of my stories. While there has been stories inputted into the book that have been published in the world of myth and Herodica, there is specific new stories that I've put in for the book that nobody's ever read before. And I, I'm hoping that everybody enjoys that. So I'm keeping my, myself busy. Um, so before I, I wind things up here, there is something that I, I want to say on a, a personal level. And that goes out to my son, Jaden. Um, I am so proud of my son. And if anybody has listened to any of the podcasts that I've ever done, you know, they probably know by now that, you know, he's a high-ranged autistic child, uh, or high-functioning as well. And what high-functioning autism is, is that he has autism, but they, they say that he's able-minded to finish school, go to college, get a job, live a happy life. You know, he's not so much inhi inhibited to living a normal life. Well, he did something that I didn't do. 
in fact, he's done something that I don't know anybody else that has done. And the beginning of the school year, which I believe was uh, August 3rd this year, he started in sixth grade. And in the process of being at school for like three weeks, he, two, three weeks, something like that, he is now becoming a seventh grader. They're, they're actually moving him up one grade level. And I am so proud of him. He's just, you know, a lot of people say things about their kids. I am blessed to have him as my son. He is, he's a very good kid. Um, you know, the hormones are kicking in. He's getting there. You know, I, I've been there. That's, I, I understand. You know, it's a whole different world. When hormones kick in, things start, you, your brain starts working different. You start thinking differently. Um, so I get that. You know, so there's, there's that, that whole preteen thing that's starting to come about. But, um, I, I am. I'm blessed to have him as my son, with or without autism. I, I would not change him for the world. Um, and he just proves how smart he is, how motivated he is. And I, again, I just I couldn't be more proud of him being my son. Okay, kids, that's enough for this week. I just, uh, you know, I just, I needed it to end it on that. Um, you know, if, if anybody knows me knows that I love my kids very much and I'm, I'm proud of them. Um, that's just who I am. That's why I get out of bed is because of my kids. So for this week, I am David K. Montoya. And if you, the dear listener, are not into cosplay or fake cosplay, Freddy Krueger, uh, or me making a movie, then why the hell are you even listening to this? Then you might be seeing red. Good night, folks. See you next week. Welcome to Seeing Red.